0: morning last week um, last week we got through the first five verses of James uh, chapter five last week James was pretty harsh um, towards these wealthy people that were in us involved in his uh, congregation and James challenged them to examine how they attained their wealth Uh, he challenged them to examine what they're doing with that wealth and um, what their attitude is towards their wealth now in verse 6 so we're picking right back up into move this out of the way so you guys can see me um, into verse 6 again I'm reading out of New King James So uh, feel free to follow along. Okay, he says, you have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Now, there's a reason why I wanted to um, pause at verse 5 to make sure we could cover verse 6 in depth. Because... When he says, you have condemned, you have murdered the just, he does not resist you. My first thought is that that sounds familiar. Uh, It sounds very similar to Peter and Paul's writing to um, these churches that are also in need of rebuke throughout the New Testament. It sounds a bit to me like James is comparing this congregation uh, to the Pharisees. I believe that he is condemning them by saying what you are doing, what you are doing to God's children is no different than what the Pharisees did to Jesus Christ, which makes you no different than them. He says, you have condemned them by your unrighteousness and you have murdered them. Um, you have murdered them in your heart because you've shown your hatred for them, right? So this is how you're treating God's children. Because if you remember in the last um, I'm sorry, in the first 5 verses, we talked about how they were dealing unrighteously towards the brethren who were employed by them. So he show he's showing them, look, you have condemned them, and because you have condemned them, you've murdered the you've murdered them. They are just, they're justified by my name, and they don't resist you. Now, it's important to keep in mind what hate is because it doesn't simply mean to wish someone was dead, okay? The biblical definition of hatred actually means to consider of no value. To consider of no value. So when you hire someone to do a job and you don't pay them, you are saying that their labor is worthless. And in your eyes, so are the individuals. Okay, this is what I bring up pretty frequently when I'm able to witness to someone is, you know, have you ever committed murder? And they say no. Well, have you ever hated any, anyone? And. And oftentimes they'll say yes, but even when they say no, I challenge them, really, are you sure? Because have you ever said that you don't have any use for this person? That person's worthless, you know, fill in the blank. Because that's, that's essentially what hatred is, is to consider of no value. It's very similar to when Jesus says, um, if you want to follow me, you must hate your mother and brother and your father and your children. You know, you must hate them. And what he means by that and what he he definitely explained was the love that you have for me in comparison to the love that you have for them, that love you have for them should appear as hatred in contrast to the amount of love that you show me. So what he means is the love that you have for me is so valuable is so treasured by you that the love that you have for your family, your earthly family, these people, should seem worthless. That's what hatred means. That's that's what that's what he's getting into. Now, does it wish? That doesn't mean that you wish somebody's dead. It certainly could. Um, that's an easy way to sum it up. But I think we kind of scratch the surface of these things sometimes, and when we do that, we don't really get the full um description of what these men and Jesus Christ are are saying to us um so then James says that they do not he does not resist you uh so God's children are showing you uh you wealthy people that are mistreating them God's children are showing you which side they are on Right? when Because we are told when our enemy strikes us on the cheek, what are we instructed and commanded to do? To turn the other cheek to them also. Now here's another phrase that um, is either interpreted or exclaimed incorrectly very often, is turn the other cheek. You'll hear people say this all the time. Well, you just have to turn the other cheek. And what normally happens Is that the individual who is wronged, instead of retaliating, their friends tell them, well, sometimes you just got to turn the other cheek. Now, what do they mean by that? Most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, those people don't really understand what that means or probably don't even know where it comes from. And what they're saying is, well, don't worry about it. Or I've even heard people say, well, karma will come back on them. You know, what goes around comes around. So really what they're actually hoping for is folly on these people. But when Jesus Christ himself said that we must turn the other cheek, it means to prepare to submit yourself to that again, right? It, it, it means go ahead and be ready to submit yourself to that same thing. So when they slap you on one cheek, you're to turn the other to them in preparation to submit to that now not that you should hope that you're struck again okay? whether it be physically or otherwise obviously you don't uh, it's not I can't wait for him to hit my other cheek that's not what that means but even if we are struck on the other cheek we must be able to rejoice that we are able to suffer with Christ for his namesake So he says, you have condemned and you have murdered the just. You've counted them worthless. So in your heart, you've committed murder against your brothers. But the thing is, is they don't resist you because they actually have an understanding of what the gospel is. Let's look at uh, verses 7 and 8. It says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The coming of the Lord is at hand. So, this, this is not the first time that James has mentioned the coming of the Lord. And I believe the reason why is because I think James really believed that he would see Christ return in his lifetime. Um, he, he's he's mentioned it multiple times and especially if you were one of the ones that saw him ascend into heaven and he said I'm returning they probably were basing this on okay from the time that he was crucified and buried in the tomb to how long he, it took him to be resurrected and then he walked with us for this amount of time and then he ascended. So it probably won't be long before he returns. Um, so he when he says, you know, right there at the end of verse 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand. You know, we talked about this last week a little bit, about the last days. We're in the last days. And we, we mentioned that, you know, in depth uh, enough, I will say, um, that we don't have to cover it again. Uh, unless you'd like for me to, and then just let me know. But he's telling us to be watchful right Um, Nicky James told this story once and I believe it was uh, a relative of his could have been his mother or his grandmother I I really can't remember you'd have to ask him but anyway it was an older woman um, very godly very righteous and one day they had decided to take her to the movie theater because she had never been in her whole life and she was on up there in age at this point And he said that a few minutes into the movie that he looked over at her because he was, you know, they were excited to take her to her first like feature film in the theater. He looked over and she was trembling and crying. And so he immediately, you know, got concerned and asked her what was wrong. And she told him that she would be horrified if she was wasting her time doing this if Christ returned right now. Now, that may be extreme, but it sounds to me like that woman had a true desire to please God. You know, she had an understanding. She, she had a watchful eye for Christ's return. She anxiously awaited the coming of the Lord. Do you and do I do we wait anxiously like that? And I would, I would dare say that some days we do more than others, especially you know, when everything's going wrong. I know I've caught myself a few times. Just saying, you know, today would be a great day for your return. <laughs> you know, that sounds horrible. I don't mean to sound uh, morbid in any way, but you know, for those of us that have an understanding of His return. We do long for it, in a sense. And in a sense, you know, we hope to see our kids grow up and them get married and them have kids and us get to play with our grandkids. We, we, it, but every now and then, it's really pushed to the forefront of our minds. So we know and we even say that we believe that the coming of the Lord is at hand. We know and believe that... His coming will be like a thief in the night; that no man knows the day or the hour, not even Christ Himself. But He is waiting for the Father to say, "Go." Right? Will He ret- uh, will His return be during our lifetime? Possibly. Um, it's it's definitely possible, um, but I, I I do know this: it is one thousand percent more likely that he will return today than yesterday so we're, we're a lot closer right now than we were yesterday so i do know that um i don't want to get into the prophetic stuff there's better teachers out there that can explain those things um than i can um i'm still learning that but each day we are that much closer to seeing Christ's return. So we should be ready. We should be anxiously awaiting. Now, am I telling you that you shouldn't go see a movie in the theater or whatever? No, obviously that's not the case. I'm not telling you to do that. Unless you feel like you shouldn't, then you shouldn't, right? the end of chapter four. Um, My point is, is that we say that we believe that that is true, but does our behavior reflect that? Now, I know people get so tired of me saying things like that. And I know you say that you believe that, but do you really? Because what does your behavior show? Jordan probably gets so tired of hearing me say stuff like that. But it's true for every one of us. We might say that we believe something, but if our behavior ever uh, falters, then do we really believe it? Because we might But if we really believe that and our behavior says otherwise, even temporarily, it shows inconsistencies there, and we need to correct those, Um, and we'll actually get into that um, today of why. Let's look at verse 9. It says, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So James is bringing it back around to the beginning of chapter 4, right? Because he's telling, he was telling them, if you remember, that they're grumbling against one another. They're, they're quarreling with one another. You're warring against each other. Remember him saying that? You're plotting evil against one another. You're deliberately mistreating the brotherhood, which is what we talked about at the beginning of this chapter. And all of that shows that you're no better off than those Pharisees who crucified the one that you claim to be your Lord, When what you should be doing is waiting anxiously on the coming of the Lord, who may very well come back today, and if he does, are you going to be proud of where you are and what you're doing? How have you been treating his children? He's standing in the door waiting to return, wanting to come and claim what is rightfully his, and the only thing that is waiting uh, that he is waiting for is a word from the father it's that close and he's saying and look what you're wrapped up in you know I, I heard i heard somebody explain it this way and i really like this you know i have a very uh like graphic mind meaning when somebody tells me a story or whatever i have to picture it in my head i have to see like see pictures and things that they explained it like this that god Uh, that Jesus Christ is sitting currently at the right hand of the Father, and he's sitting at the edge of his seat, waiting, patiently, but anxiously waiting. Like anxiously meaning he he is ready to do it at a moment's notice. And he's sitting and waiting for the Father to say, go, and as soon as he does, he'll come and return. I really like that, uh, that image. I don't know if it's accurate, you know, that he's at the edge of a seat kind of thing, but um, it definitely helped with my understanding of how close the time is. Now, I don't want to seem all doom and gloom. But the, the end is nigh, and you know, that, that's not what James is, is doing here either. Um, he's just trying to prepare us for what, what's coming. So let's look at verses um, 10 and 11. He says, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. For you have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very passionate, very compassionate, and merciful. Okay, James. Again, is appealing to their knowledge and belief in what we know now or know today as the Old Testament. Um, He's showing them through those accounts how not only we are supposed to conduct ourselves, but James is showing them that even they accredited those prophets suffering as a blessing, right, when they endured. So he's saying, look, you're saying that you believe... The account of Job um, or Moses or fill in the blank, these these men and women that had to endure these trials that because they persevered it was accredited to them as righteousness, right? We read about that earlier in the book and talking about Abraham you're saying that but he's saying this is exactly what we discussed in in chapter 1 right because what what I mean by that is James is saying you've heard of the perseverance of Job and seen right he says right here you have seen the end intended by the lord you've seen the end intended by the lord so this goes back to what we discussed when we did the lesson on the purpose of prayer god in, god's intentions It's important that we understand God's intentions, okay? Because people tend to dispel that God's intentions are somehow thwarted by man, you know, that that we are some variable that he, that some unknown variable that he can't account for, but when it occurs, he can adjust things. I've even heard people say this, that God is sovereign over all things and that he created all things and set everything into motion and then backed away and kind of let it just kind of let it go from there that's not true sovereignty I I don't want to I don't want to keep reiterating these um, thoughts or these ideas but either God is sovereign or he isn't so People try to dispel that that God's, you know, that God's intentions are. They try to dispel that God intended Job to go through those things, when the scriptures plainly tell us that that's not true. And I would I would challenge you that if if it says even once, even once that God's plan is unchanging then either that's true or our understanding of it is wrong. So what I mean by this is, you know, when we're talking about God changing his mind, we were talking about that pretty in depth. And and I've had discussions with people since then about this, and they said, well, I'm still not necessarily sold that God doesn't change his mind. I'm like, well, if I can show you just once, right, that, that it says that he doesn't, Would that suffice? And a lot of times they say no. And the reason for that is because they don't want to be wrong. And I'm not trying to be right here. You know, I've said this multiple times that I've been told several times that I need to stop trying to be right and I need to agree with what's right and I'll be right. has nothing to do with me. Okay. So the uncomfortable truth about this is that most of the time, those who believe that God couldn't have intended for bad things to happen, are the ones who are dealing with those horrible circumstances. I understand that. But then it is impossible for us to reconcile that not only would God allow these things to happen, it's not that he just allows them to happen, but it seems evil if we believe that it was his plan all along. I've heard this this argument about people say so are you saying that God that God intended it was his plan for these horrible things to happen because if God is sovereign completely sovereign like you say then you're saying that he planned for these horrible things to happen before he even created us yes that's what I'm saying that's what I'm saying because I'll tell you this, at least I'm being consistent with my belief. Because, But if you say that you believe God is sovereign, but you don't think that God could you know, or that God would do these things, then you're being inconsistent. But see, the problem with, with this is that we are the very people that James is talking to here. We're the very ones he's, he's talking to. James is telling us, you know the scriptures. You know and believe that what God did for the Israelites was good. You know and believe that. You know and believe that what God did for Job and to Job was for good, right? And with the Israelites, he had to first bring them into bondage. And you even believe that the bondage was meant for good, right? You believe that. But now that you, personally, you and me, are the ones exposed to a fiery trial that we can't quite see the end to, now we try to justify it. Now we try to say, well, clearly, God wouldn't plan for this horrible thing to happen. He's telling us not to do that, because when we do, we are misrepresenting who he is, so I'm going to say this again and again and again and again. If you do not agree with the holy scriptures, if you do not believe that what it that it means what it says, now does it mean more than what it says sometimes? Sure. But it it does mean what it says. But if you try to somehow misrepresent it and say, "Well, he can't really mean that." You've got a choice to make here. You can either Worship the just and holy God as he is and as he always will be or you can choose to worship this other God who wouldn't do something like that which is worshiping a God of your own creation which is idolatry I know it seems like I'm constantly harping on that but I believe that idolatry is so rampant, not only in America and the world, but in Alabama and Arab, in the church, it's everywhere because people misrepresent who God is through numerous reasons. Either they're lazy and they don't wanna do the work and and study and, in the, and pursue him, which I would challenge you. If that's the case, you may not actually believe that what he's saying is true, means you may not actually be a christian okay you may just be lazy or you have some sort of preconceived notion or opinion and now the scriptures contradict that and you don't like it so what are you going to do about it you're going to try to justify it some way and say well it clearly can't mean that when you do that that is idolatry i don't know i know i know it seems like i'm you know it says right here you know compassionate i guess i'm just passionate about this is it I want to expose that I want us to get on the right track that the way is is straight and narrow right the gate the that's a narrow gate there and we have to make sure we are on the right path we can't deviate from it so remember I said um that is an it is impossible for us to recognize, or I'm sorry, recognize, to reconcile those things that if God is all sovereign, then how could he not just allow, but to plan for these horrible things to happen? Well, because without God, it is impossible to reconcile those things. To us, it would seem like an evil puppet master controlling all these things, just doing what he would with it. But when we trust God and we trust his plan, Then even we can't see it now because we, we, we have, I like to think of those horse blinders. We have blinders on because we can only view time in the present. Now we can, we can look back through a small scope, right? Through a small lens of what happened in the past. And the reason why I say, uh, I say it like that is because you weren't there. To experience it so you're having to base this off of other people here so you have a very narrow scope right of the past so the only thing that we can really witness is the present and we cannot see what's going to happen in the future but if we trust God and we trust his plan and we believe him then we know that he is going to be glorified through it no matter what That's God's intentions for all things. That's his intentions for all things that he would be glorified. Why did he create everything? So that he would be glorified. Why did he allow Adam and Eve to sin? So that he would be glorified. Why did God cause the Israelites to be enslaved? So that he would be glorified. Why did God allow the Holocaust to happen? So that he would be glorified. Why is God causing you to go through your trial that you're dealing with right now? It's for the very same reason, so that he would be glorified. Why would God allow his son to die so that he would be glorified? And finally, people ask, why would God, this all-loving God, send anyone to hell? When they're asking the wrong question, when the question should be, why would this holy, righteous, just God pardon anyone who has sinned against him and allow them to escape his wrath? Not why would God send anyone to hell? Why would a loving God condemn them? But, but how could a just God how could a just God pardon anyone who has sinned against him? It is all so that he would be glorified. It's why we're here. It's why we wake up. It's why we do anything. It is all for his glory. Remember, I even said a couple of weeks ago talking about that, that we all will glorify Christ When we die one way or another, either by we will glorify him by his, his perfect mercy and grace, or we will glorify him through his perfect justice. We should find comfort and joy in this because we now know as his children, how rich in compassion and mercy. He really is the end of verse 11 there. verse 12 says but above all my brethren do not swear either by heaven or by our earth or with any other oath but let your yes be yes and your no no lest you fall into judgment this is this is pretty self-explanatory um be accountable be credible if you have to say i promise after telling someone that you'll do something... Then you probably have lost some credibility along the way. Um, most of us probably even know someone... Who when they say that they will do something... You know you can, you can take it to the bank. <laughs> you can expect it to be completed... Without a second thought. Um, we should also be in pursuit of that same attribute. You know imagine if our words... Held that amount, that level of credibility, and then we presented them with the gospel. What kind of effect is that going to have? You know, what um, if 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 you have that much credibility, then when you present them with the gospel, they will at least know that you believe it to be true, and you believe it enough to say something about it and one of my favorite quotes of all time is from the magician uh Penn Jillette, because um ray comfort tried to reach out to him several times and witness to him finally uh several years ago he was able to and while he was uh speaking to him in a hotel room and all this um he actually went like afterwards you know ray had he gave him a bible and asked him some questions and things like that well he goes away well then you can actually look this up on youtube and i encourage you to that uh some somebody was interviewing him and pen uh, Pen had actually mentioned it um he had mentioned that yeah you know a christian came and and tried to uh, i don't know if he said convert me or something like that right and the interviewer was immediately annoyed and offended and they were like, Well, we're gonna, you know, took it as an opportunity to kind of bash Christians in a way. And um he actually said, uh, Oh yeah, so so I bet that's irritating or whatever, you know. And he said, No, no, I don't I don't take it that way at all. As a matter of fact, I'm flattered by it because here's the deal. He believes it's true. He said, Now I'm not totally convinced yet, but he believes it's true. And he said he he believes it's true so much that he believes that there's a place called hell. And anyone, anyone who believes that if you're not a Christian, you'll go to hell. If you really love somebody, you'll tell them. He said, which means one of two things. If you don't tell them, that means one of two things. Either you don't really believe it or you don't actually care about them. And I thought that was a great way to explain how we as Christians ought to be presenting the gospel to those who are lost. Not in a not in a forceful, you know, type way. But even he recognized the amount of concern and love that Ray had shown to him. And and he doesn't even know that it was Ray Comfort. He doesn't even know who Ray Comfort is, which is hilarious. Um but my my point is this and, and so is so is Penn's here is that imagine someone that that Penn actually knew and could count on and held his his uh, that person's words as as truth incredible, and they c- came to him and said, "I am concerned for you and I love you, and it's because I love you I must." not I have to but I must I can't not I must tell you that you're headed to hell and without true belief and repentance and the grace of Jesus Christ that you'll spend an eternity there imagine how much weight those words would hold with them now I've heard Penn Jillette mention this very encounter multiple times in multiple interviews which means that it spoke to him enough that he even said he went and did his research and has been reading his Bible now this has been years ago I don't know if he's still doing it but that really says something let your yes be yes and your no be no you have to maintain credibility you have to maintain your credibility, and it doesn't take much at all to lose all credibility towards someone. So, when you tell someone you're going to do something, do it. Otherwise, tell them no, because we in America have adopted this method of not wanting to hurt anybody's feelings when they ask you to do something. So, we kind of go, you know, somebody asks you to come to some get together. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll try to make it. You know, we'll... I mean, you're and you have no intention of really going, that's not okay. You know, I know you're trying to be nice. You don't have to be rude, but you can just basically, you can tell them no. I would rather you tell me no, than say, oh yeah, well, yeah, we'll try to make it. And then when you get home, go, okay, we gotta try to come up with some excuse of why we're not going or whatever, you know? We don't need to do that. We need to be transparent with them. We need to be gentle. We need to present things in love, obviously. But we need to let our yes be yes and our no be no. So we are going to stop there. Um, We're going to pick back up and hopefully finish the book of James next week. Um, We're going to, I'm sorry, verse 13 is is pretty heavy. So we're going to spend a little bit of time there and then we're going to try to finish up chapter 5. So, um,. Again, thank you so much for watching. If you are new, please make sure you uh, subscribe down here somewhere and you click that little notification bell to let you know whenever I post uh, new videos. Um, almost all of them will be you know, Bible studies of some kind. But again, I just want to say thank you guys so much for watching. Um, thank you for your time and your patience and your prayers and your commitment to this class. Um, I hope you have a great week. And with that, I will see you um, next week.